Welcome to the Book a Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. Hi everyone, my name is Venugopal Madhipati. I'm an architectural historian and I teach and write in Delhi. I'm particularly interested in themes related to housing, ecological aesthetics, and law. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with Professor Vidya Dehejia, who is the Barbara Stoller Miller Professor of Indian and South Asian Art at Columbia University. Now, Professor Dehejia hardly needs an introduction. Her scholarship is so wide ranging. And the discipline of art history in particular is indebted to her for many reasons, not the least of which is her attempt at bringing the excitement of her own field, which is South Asian art and architectural history, to non-specialist audiences. In 2021, uh, Professor Dehejia published a book with the Princeton University Press titled, The Thief Who Stole My Heart, The Material Life of Sacred Bronzes from Chola, India, 855 to 1280 Common Era. And we eagerly look forward to conversing with Professor Dehejia about this book, which is, as mentioned on the publisher's website, the first book to put the sacred and sensuous bronze statues from India's Chola dynasty in social context. Today, however, we'd like to dwell on an older book, which Professor Dehejia co-authored in 2016 with the late sculptor Peter Rockwell. And that book is titled The Unfinished, Stone Carvers at Work on the Indian Subcontinent. Now, this is a substantial text devoted to temporal succession and causation in the art of sculpting. Professor Dehejia, along with the late Peter Rockwell, explores causation and temporal succession, albeit in the context not so much of the reception of the work of art, but in the context, the context of its creation. And so finally, coming to our questions, let's begin by asking Professor Dehejia, how were temporal sequences of sculpting in the South Asian context different from those in a Western context? Why are some temples and monuments thought of as complete against the grain of the conventional way of, let's just say, the Western way in which we imagine the temporal progression of the act of completion? So this is the first question of our day. Over to you, uh, Professor Dehejia. Um, that's an interesting question to start with, um, since the book itself is called The Unfinished. I wonder if our we are overrating this category of finish in the sense that every single bit of a monument has to be absolutely complete for it to be called completion. I started this project with Peter Rockwell on realizing that, uh, let me speak just about rock cut monuments. There are about 1100 rock cut monuments in India and a good 750 of them are what we would call unfinished. And apparently, the users of those monuments did not consider them all unfinished. Yes, of course, there are unfinished monuments which have just been started and abandoned, but there are plenty of monuments, um, both rock cut and structural. When you walk around them, you find that according to a Western concept of finish, they are not finished. And yet they were totally used, used by devotees, by admirers, by the patrons who commissioned them, all of them. So 
the whole idea of Finnish might be overrated in the context of India. The idea that if we have to go back to talking about the fact that these are all sacred monuments, almost all of them. And you walk around, say, the great temple at Tanjavur built by Rajaraja Chola, and nobody notices, actually, today, I mean, in the 21st century, visitors to the site don't even notice the unfinished. And when Rockwell and I would ask some of the visitors whether they were from overseas or they were Indians right from that part of the country, did you notice what is not finished? And they would be stunned. They would say, no, there isn't unfinished. And we would say, come with us. And we'd show them portions of it. It almost seems like because there is so much to see and so much of it is so beautiful and finished that they don't notice even the unfinished parts of monuments. And in the context of sacred sites, I think the fact that you are aiming first and foremost for that shrine where you can express your devotion. And as long as that shrine is totally finished, devotees, visitors seem to be able to ignore what we would call unfinished in subsidiary areas. It's an interesting phenomenon. The other reason we delved into unfinished monuments was the fact that, you know, when you have 780 monuments or something out of 1100, which show unfinished, you can't keep on going to the old explanations of, well, the patron ran out of money, or there was war, and there was warlike conditions, the king was fighting, so everybody moved away from it. You can do that, obviously, with certain sites, definitely. But you can't use that all the time, as has often been done, saying it must have been something like that. We felt we had to probe a little further. And one of the chapters of The Unfinished is certainly devoted to sites of that type. I don't know if that answers part of the question for you. No, I think it, it does. And I think it's, it's really, um, it's, it's a question which I think resurfaces in, in the other questions as well that we've actually thought through, which is like, if you continue further, how would you explain completion? Thinking in terms of causation, for instance, would you suggest that completion was the cause of the act of inscribing inscriptions, for instance, in the visual field in stone monuments. And in this regard, it's kind of fascinating to note the sheer number of instances of these inscriptions that somehow bleed into the visual field, as you show in your book. And, and these inscriptions do raise a question more broadly about the relationship between text and image. So could you say something about that relationship as well? But tying it also to this question of the inscription and its relationship, uh, perhaps with completion. Yeah, well, that is a fascinating issue. And scholars generally previously had tended to assume that the inscription was the last thing that was added. Therefore, that meant everything was finished. But I came across so many examples of inscriptions, which are sort of the intention to finish. So you've got a completely unfinished interior, say, of a monument. And yet on the outer wall, they have smoothed the beautiful space and they've written out the inscription saying, I so-and-so from such and such place give this monument to the community of Buddhist monks from this region. 
and you walk in and you can't walk fully in because it's still being excavated. So we, that is an assumption we cannot make that the inscription seems very often to have been added fairly early on as a record of an intention um, the, to complete and hand this over. And we don't know why, what happened? Was it that the rock was poor quality, that there were faults in the stone, um, that water came seeping in? Um, a variety of possible reasons, including, of course, that he ran out of money, but he doesn't seem to have when he is so grandly giving it and for the, for the benefit of all human beings and so on. So it seems that some that inscriptions were added, yes, sometimes at the end, maybe, but very often at the very start, it's almost like your foundation stone, which says so-and-so laid this stone on such and such a day, and then the construction continues after that. So it, inscriptions have to be treated rather cautiously. We can't assume that they were added at the end. They were very often added at the start. Yeah, because I think it's it's really fascinating because I think the way you approach the material in Khajuraho, you uh, share a number of inscriptions that you actually uh, document over there. And, but then continuing further, would you say that sculpture, say in your chapter in uh, rhythm of construction and carving techniques um, was driven by, uh, let's just say, uh, lack of a better word, a teleological comprehension of causation, which is to say it had a very strong conception of the end in architectural and sculptural terms retroactively have an effect on the material means that were drawn upon to create the end. So I'm wondering if you would be able to say something about that. Um, my collaboration with uh, Peter Rockwell was an extremely fruitful collaboration. It's one of those collaborations that actually and honestly is a collaboration. Um, we were both interested, Rockwell had been to India two or three times before we teamed up. Uh, and we were both fascinated for different reasons with the unfinished monuments. Um, and we were approaching them from two different angles and those met and, and melded and really made a complete sort of a whole as looking at these monuments. Rockwell had been, is an actual carver, apart from carving works of sculpture, which are displayed as you enter a, a, a museum complex or, or something like that. He also actually carved pillars and capitals for convents. He lived mostly in Italy, so most of his work is in Italy. And the whole idea of, of the rhythm of construction, which is the title we gave to one of our chapters, came from his experience. He was telling me how he, he was asked to carve 42 capitals for this convent in Kyoga. And he was given a date and he had two assistants. They carved these capitals, they shaped them out, and then they were doing the decorative carving. And a good third of those capitals were not absolutely finished in the sense that the decorative carving of them was not done. And on a particular day, the, the supervisor came to him and said, that's the date we gave you. My capitals have to go up. And when Rockwell said, but we want to finish this carving, he said, you cannot hold up 
the monument. If I don't put the capitals, I can't put the tablature, I can't put the arches, I can't finish the thing, I need my money. It, you've got to be practical. We're putting them up, we're starting today. If you want to go up there on scaffolding and finish the carving, you can do it. If you don't, I don't care. It was amazing. And it was an amazing uh, sort of um, experience for me to listen to somebody having this sort of experience. And then you go and look at pillars and capitals and little bits of unfinished work. And you say, oh my God, this is something practical. We've got yeah. to get down to practicalities wow. yeah. and um, think in, in slightly different terms. It was, yeah. it was very enlightening working with him. Wow. So yeah, I think that's that's through a process of actually immersing oneself in the experience of, of creating it. And I think that sort of brings you closer to a comprehension of um, a kind of a rhythm of construction as you bring it out in that chapter. Which also sort of brings us to the next question, which is, um, since you mentioned Peter Rockwell, you know, what's very interesting about the book is that, um, at least when I was actually going through it, it was very difficult to distinguish between the portions that you had written from the ones that you know Peter Rockwell had written because I think it's 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 this kind of guesswork because I was constantly trying to sort of think through uh, wait I think this is Professor Dehaja writing and this is um, you know uh, Peter Rockwell and it wasn't I mean it, it's at times it seemed that there was a distinction but then at at other times it seemed that you know it's one voice so. I think that was, uh, it's, it's very interesting sort of to see how two uh, authors and, you know, two thinkers actually come together. And I was wondering if you could say something about the process of writing and the experience of working with Peter Rockwell. Um, it was fascinating. It, I, I think collaboration can be fascinating. It's bound to have its frustrating moments. Um, the way we worked on this book on and off for about six years. It was a long process. It was continuing while we were doing other things. Uh, and our modus operandi was that Rockwell wanted to speak. So he would have a little mic with him as we were walking around any site and he would speak into it. And then in the evening we would transcribe it and I would be the one who would be on the computer and he would be you know, listening and, and, and um, adding things. So in a way, from the very start, we were sort of jointly writing. Yes, there are certain parts, of course, which deal completely with technical issues, which was absolutely what he was so familiar with, that he wrote bits of that. And the final writing, um, ultimately, he said to me when it came to the, the final stage, he said, look, I really am a sculptor. <laughs> stone you write so you do this final writing so it was a question of pulling his material which had already been sort of partly digested and commented on in our daily note-taking um, and I guess ultimately much of the final writing was mine but it made sense I mean as he said you know before we started he made me cut stone. Um, he had a um, home outside Florence in Italy, and he said, I'm going to get a soft block of limestone, and you're going to cut it. And 10 days we spent trying to cut stone. It was one of the hardest things I've ever, ever tried to do. 
And I came away, I mean, I came away with the deepest respect for stone covers, contemporary or ancient. Here was what he called soft limestone. And I thought this was the hardest stone I'd come across. And I was desperately trying to write the word with which many inscriptions end, which is danum, gift of, donation of. It was the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. And Rockwell was roaring with laughter while I was struggling with the Dhanam. And I said, I was so irritated. I said, why are you laughing like this? And he said, well, look, you're hardly out of kindergarten and you're trying to do grad school work. So I said, what do you mean? He said, inscriptions are the hardest thing to do. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, you know, I never had thought about it until you actually get into it. And then you begin to realize all that's involved in the process, which you normally just take for granted. You go to a site, you see an inscription and you, yeah, yeah it's there, but it's quite complex. Yeah, which I think like just seeing um, how you were both uh, working off each other, it, it would appear that there is a kind of a division of labor even in the writing of the text, but which also, sort of points towards a slightly different question related to uh, the references to division of labor in the text itself, right? I mean, there's, um, which I thought was actually something that might be uh, meaningful to, to, to hear uh, in terms of how you sort of imagined, or at least uh, in, in terms of how you, um, how, how you explored this question of the theme of the division of labor uh, as you were writing this book. Like some portions of the book where it seems that like there's the task of overseeing, which might have been distinct from the task of sculpting itself, right? So, and there's these seem to be these intermediaries who seem to be, I mean, at least the, uh, the idea of an intermediary. So I was wondering, that's what I was trying to get at with the idea of how would you imagine, do you think there was a division of labor in terms of like the site itself and the work that was best It would have to be, of course, if you take rock cutting, somebody has to choose the site, that's okay. You've chosen the hill of, um, say, Karla. And, but then where exactly you, you scout out the rock, you try and test it out and find the site. Then you've got to look and see is the quality of the stone apparently on the exterior, okay, should we be going in here? Is there water close by? Um, then there's the factor of time. When you're building, you can be putting down pillars all along and people can be working on them, say if it's a pillared hall constructed. But with rock cut, you're stuck. You've got this whole mountainside and you can go very slowly only. And finally, with the rock cut, there's this huge amount of waste removal. You're chipping mm -hmm. away stuff. Labor has to be there to remove all those pieces of stone and take them away so that you can keep progressing inward. And um, it's a, a, a slightly different, but a similar sort of supervisory procedure, definitely with, with all the temples um, and the carvings and organizing the carvers and do they work on the site. At some sites like the Hoysala temples, it's pretty evident that they would have had to work on the site itself because the carving is far too intricate and the ins and outs and the niches and projections. Um, in other places, you can quite clearly see that large scale images could have been made in a workshop and brought and inserted into place. 
And the fact that they are not, those slabs are not all of the same size as well. They can be a little bigger or a little smaller and the images are not exactly identical, suggests that they were made elsewhere in maybe more than one workshop, which was known for its quality carving and then brought in. So the supervisory role had to be a, a, a really, really important role. And he was the supervisor was presumably the one who reported to the patron who said, okay, it's the king's 42nd birthday and we want this temple ready. And you know, what are you doing about it? And so you, you rush the work forward. And if there is unfinished, you say, okay, we can see that this is Vishnu, never mind his devotees on the side, leave them as blocks. Let's get this going and let's finish it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think like it's also, which also kind of keeps bringing us back to initially, you know, what we mentioned was your interest in temporality and temporal succession, which is that uh, by the conventional measure of what we understand uh, temporal succession to be, uh, especially in sculpture and especially by conventional, if we, insofar as we refer to the conventional as the Western context, um, a lot of these ideas of completion uh, that you are highlighting in this book are fundamentally different from that. And I think that's, that seems somewhat also in keeping with your broader interest in your earlier work in, in bringing forth very different ways of imagining um, temporality. And I think that's, that's something that at least because I've, I've been following your work for so long, and I was just, when I was reading this, it was kind of, um, you know, occurring to me that I think this, this looks like something uh, that uh, Professor Dahedia is interested in and has been interested in for quite some time. So, so I thought that continuity was coming through quite spectacularly in this book. And, uh, but I also sort of want to bring, bring this up to the next question, which is, it's also a kind of a philosophical question, which is that this book is particularly interesting philosophically since the material evidence it points towards in so many ways makes us question our conceptions of temporality and temporal progression in our own present. So, um, I mean, in, in one way of looking at it, it does take us back at least obliquely to somebody like say David Hume and longstanding critiques of causality in philosophy. But, but I wonder if you can bring this knowledge of the art of carving as a world of contradictory temporal narratives to enthuse a whole new generation in the present. So can the new generation of sculptors say for instance, or even art historians, take on materiality as a distinct theme unto itself with its own hidden bruises and forks and turns in terms of causal thinking. Is there such a material turn that you witness today in the present for sculptors, artists, and architects? So this is a sort of a, a very broad uh, question. But I think um, I was wondering if, if that's something that you see, because as you mentioned, you start with experiences in the present and then you travel back into the past and, and then you realize that our present and its notions of causality and narrative are not sufficient in understanding uh, the practice of sculpting in the past. And so, uh, but then how do you bring that material from the past back to bear upon the present? You know, that's the reverse part of the question. Is That's a much more difficult question to answer. And of course, it's sort of between causally explaining a belief system and then justifying that belief system. And this is all mixed up with that sort of thing. Um, the idea that mental events like your own belief system 
your sentiments are sort of natural and they will be expressed in everything that you do. That is, in a way, it's sort of imagination versus reason. But with sculptors, I wonder, it's an interesting issue. Uh, I'm not sure I can answer the question, but I can just throw out a few thoughts about it, being that in the sense of completing the shrine, which is the one thing that is a common feature. You can walk around a temple and see masses of unfinished work, but when you, if you, if you focus directly on the shrine and walk straight to it, you'll find that the shrine itself is absolutely complete and perfect. So it seems to be that in a place of worship, which most of these were, and most of modern material is not, um, it, it was only the, the God and the, the house of God, the interior of the house of God, not even the exterior, that had to be perfect. And you couldn't take any shortcuts there. But once you moved even one hall out from that interior, as long as the, the, the myths were readable, you could see that this is Shiva killing Andaka, or you could see the marriage of Shiva and Parvati. It didn't seem to matter that the lower half said there were figures seated at their feet who clearly have chisel marks, which would have been smoothed away and would have been finished in that level of perfection type idea of, of, of finish. And I would say that it's not that they started out by saying we're going to leave it, but it was certainly intended to finish everything. And there are many monuments which are completely finished and perfect and uh, down to the last level of perfection. But it looks like that was not the prime motivating factor, the, the perfection of everything around it. If the shrine was perfect, it could be put into worship. And then perhaps like um, Rockwell's supervisor told them, you can go and finish it if you want to. If you don't want to, you, you've been paid and you can leave. And it seems that there's something to be said in, in favor of that type of an argument because there's so much of it in India. You know, when we, you teach any survey course and you go to Ajanta, you go to Ellora, you go to Mahabalipuram, you, any site which we wouldn't consider unfinished. But if you are taking the technical Western concept of finished, then they are not finished. They may not be unfinished, but they are not perfectly finished. So there's something going on there. Will modern artists, well, they have the world at their feet because they are sculpting or carving or painting in a completely different world, which is not a world of practicality of, of necessarily. And so they do have the ability if they were interested in exploring issues like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think which is also like, for instance, the chapter on the rhythms of construction, there is a larger uh, sense of a whole to which the parts are subordinated, right, in, in putting together work. And I think to that end, uh, sometimes the, uh, the sort of the, the necessity of the whole 
itself somehow overcomes the, the so-called incompletion of the parts. So I think uh, there, are, there are ways in which you know, uh, people seem to foreground certain ends uh, you know, and certain other ends, which are perhaps in the case of like individual uh, works of sculpture, they kind of recede. I think that's that kind of um, foregrounding comes across very evocatively, I think, in the chapter on the sequence of construction. And I think that I, I wonder if you'd like to say something about that chapter. Well, um, going back to an inscription and going to the site of Patadakal in the Deccan, one of the really surprising things about the temple there is that there are, well, the, say the Virupaksha, Malikarjuna, uh, Sangameshwara, those three temples. In the middle of those three temples is a freestanding column which has been erected. And on it is this long inscription winding around the column, which says that the queen in honor of her husband Vikramaditya having captured Kanchi three times, set up this column and set up one of the three temples. There were three queens. So, I mean, it's sort of um, extraordinary that something which has been put up with great pride to say that I'm commemorating my husband, the king's victory, would still have so many unfinished images where you can see the rough stones, you can see the chisel marks, you can see outlines marked. Of course, once again, it probably was that the inscription was inscribed early, but the fact that the dynasty continues. So you would imagine that somebody would say, look, we've got to finish these. Why don't we finish them? But it doesn't seem to have been of that much significance. You can make out what the figure is. It's Shiva doing this, or he's dancing with Gajasura, um, the elephant skin, because his hands are up and you can see the gesture. But the fact that there are chisel marks of different types at different angles doesn't seem to have bothered them. So it was a puzzling feature and still remains a bit of a puzzle to see why exactly that was. So, um, Professor Deheja, um, th there's just one question towards the end because I think it's a slightly um, complex question because I think uh, this relates pr principally to the idea of synchronicity um, and diachronicity. I think especially insofar as we historians, um, uh, it's a theme that actually comes up in um, the craft of history writing as well. But what I find very interesting about your uh, text with Peter Rockwell is that on the one hand, there's an emphasis on synchronous sculpting in some of the sites, right? Which is that there's these uh, multiple events of sculpting that are simultaneously happening and that, you know, any comprehension of some kind of a linear um, causal narrative in terms of how, um, for instance, some of these Chaitya halls are actually excavated would not be a sufficient picture because different tasks are being undertaken simultaneously by different teams of sculptors, right? So there's this, there's this kind of synchronicity, which actually, even though the uh, experience of the space is, is, is linear, insofar as you, know, you might not be able to see these uh, divergent teams working simultaneously, but the fact remains that in the creation of these spaces, 
you do have simultaneity. And that's that's one part of the question. And what's interesting to note is that in the book, at the same time, I think there's an element of synchronicity in the manner in which the chapters are all sort of jostling with each other, right? It's not like a causal cause and effect sequence that you don't move from one chapter to the next as if like there's some kind of, you know, um, causal uh, link between what comes before and what comes after. So I think that was very fascinating to see that like uh, something that actually the content of the book itself begins to be mirrored in the narrative technique itself. And I don't know if that's actually conscious or if it is actually, you know, it comes out of working, um, you know, an art historian working with a sculptor, but it's it's really fascinating. And I think it's it's also what makes the book very difficult to read you know, uh, at many instances, because very laborious, because you've got to go through all this. And then uh, to bring together, to string together a coherent narrative, right? That's that's the challenge. But at the same time, I think at the end of it, you do begin to realize that perhaps it's by design. And perhaps it's time that we actually began to understand narrative in this way, and which is why I actually felt compelled to go back to your older writing and actually to to observe that that's something that you've been consistently you know thinking about that uh, narrativization doesn't progress in 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 the conventional uh, ways in which we imagine it in a, in very different contexts and and I think to be sensitive to that is necessary insofar as one needs to be able to in some rudimentary form uh, access a past which is no longer available to us so I think that's that's a very convoluted question but that's actually what I want to conclude with so that we have your remarks on it. um Putting together this book um, was really quite a complex process. Um, there were a series of issues that we wanted to explore. And having explored them and come up with a, a tentative sort of write-up for each of those issues, the question then was, how do we string these together? Some of them, lent themselves to being strung together with the next one. Some didn't lend them. And yet we felt that it was a very important part of uh, an exploration. We sort of decided that it's probably unlikely that anybody else is going to do anything with this unfinished material because it really demands a collaboration and you've got to get two people who can work together and do this. Um, so there was quite a struggle in putting the chapters together. Should I do it this way? Should we do rock cut versus structural? Should we do, uh, there were so many ways. Synchronicity in actual carving was a very interesting thing. I hadn't actually assumed that it would exist, but particularly in rock cut, I was surprised because you would look at a Buddhist Chaitya hall. So you've got this sort of apsidal interior and you've got this uh, arched facade. And at many of the incomplete sites, we found remnants of a level in between the top and bottom, which absolutely indicated that in order to maybe work faster, that you could have one set of workers at one level, another on a ground, which would be the ceiling of the lower level temporarily, and another set of people working at a lower level. And that when each of those was done, you would remove that floor ceiling 
which divided them, which must have been a very tricky thing because the columns are pretty straight. Of course, synchronous work had to happen with all the structural monuments so that you could have many carvers sitting there and carving panels and carving base moldings and, and, and so on. So that was not so difficult. But yes, it's also got to be diachronic in the sense that you, you really do have to complete the facade of a rock cut monument and the front of it before you can proceed further. So it's, an, it's interesting to see that maybe they were juggling these things always and in following the juggling method, as I call it for the book and the chapters, I was just following the fact that you can sometimes do it at the same time and sometimes you've got to, it, it, it succeeds, it follows one after the other anyway. Well, I think it's, it's, I feel like the book is paradigmatically different. And so it's, it's really a wrestling match inside the head, you know, I mean, that, that you've got to, you've got to contend with this, this kind of, especially when you're mentioning in the Chaitya halls, right, when you have actually two different levels, and you've got to, like, when you actually see both of them, and you realize that this single space, this one space is actually the product of two uh, attempts at excavation, which, which then actually makes you realize that it's, um, there is something called synchronicity in the art of sculpting, especially in the context of these Chaitya halls, and, and which is an entirely different imagination, right? In, uh, from the one of the imagination of the reception of the space. That's what I say. There is a different imagination of creation from the one that is the imagination of reception, which is, which is I think, where I also felt somewhere that um, you'd actually gone from your older work which was uh, about uh, perhaps synchronicity in the imagination of reception to, in this case, in uh, you know, a, a kind of an emphasis on synchronicity in the context of creation. It was interesting what you say, because um, in a way, we have up to now, myself included, privileged the viewer, the recipient of the work, mm -hmm. and how they would receive it and imagine it. And in a way, it's only very recently, um, most of the work is done with paintings where the artist himself, mostly himself, unfortunately, uh, is uh, being considered and how he mixes the paints and what are his preliminary lines work and how does he proceed and how many days does it take to do something. Uh, there's been some good work on painting, but sculpting is, uh, is such a difficult, uh, admirable art that it, it hadn't been um, sort of taken up. And this seemed with Peter Rockwell being interested in it and being a sculptor himself, it sort of seemed the ideal thing to pick up. But the project, which was supposed to be, you know, a, a two-year National Endowment for the Humanities project ended up sort of consuming us for about six years before we could actually say, okay, maybe we're ready as a first step to put this book out and, and let's see how it goes just to, to see what the response is. No, I think, I think it's going to have a life, um, an extended life for a very long time. And I think it's raised a lot of important questions as indeed has so much of your work. But I think in this particular case, I think uh, I found it very rewarding. And I, I just felt that it left me puzzled. And, and I, I really wish quite a few people read this text. 
and um, just hoping that um, it gets wide uh, readership in India. Thank you so much for uh, for agreeing uh, to this interview. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast 